Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Carol. Well, again, Merry Christmas. So, yeah, our service of 2021, and uh, we are... Um, continuing or finishing our series, uh, Signs of the Savior, and um, really uh, just excited about this, uh, but I'm aware that this is a week where, uh, you know, kind of things are starting to get a little bit crazy, kind of the final run-up to Christmas Day itself, it's only six days away, and uh, I'm, I'm aware that Christmas time for some is like a nice relaxing season. It's a nice relaxing time. You get to rest on Christmas Day. You get to have fun. Uh, but for others, uh, not so much. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm aware that for some people, Christmas is a bit of a stressful time of the year. And one of the things that can often come up in people's uh, families is the, the big debate over where you spend Christmas Day or where you go over the Christmas period. Does anybody have this kind of dilemma to figure out each Christmas? Yeah, there's a few hands. Uh, For those of you who have your hands down, you can just be thankful that you don't have to deal with this. Um, But, you know, there's there's sometimes this uh, heated debate that can happen in homes um, where it's like, do we spend Christmas with your parents? Do we spend Christmas with my parents? Uh, Do we try and ignore both of them and just enjoy Christmas to ourselves for once? You know, there's all these debates. And and sometimes these can create kind of heated moments in the home and and a little bit of tension as we lead into the Christmas period. But whatever your tensions are over the Christmas period, whatever the, the, the stresses are that cause maybe you and your spouse or someone in your family to fall out a little bit, you can be thankful that at least you don't have to deal with the drama that Mary and Joseph had to deal with as they, they were experiencing in the very first Christmas uh, when Jesus was born. You see, many of you will know the story, but uh, Mary and Joseph lived in a place called Nazareth. But Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. Now, that's a pretty well-known fact to to most of us, uh, like those who know the Christmas story. Um, But actually, Bethlehem was about 70 miles away from Nazareth. Now, for for most of us, this would be a pretty uh, normal distance for us to travel to visit family over the Christmas period. But actually, for, for Mary and Joseph, this was a pretty big deal. You see, uh, 70 miles uh, back then would have actually been a journey that would have taken about uh, just over five days of traveling. And then when you factor in the fact that they didn't have roads like what we have today, that meant, and they didn't have cars like what we have today, that meant that they had to either walk or ride an animal like a donkey uh, over basically rough terrain over just uh, open countryside in order to get there. And then add on to the fact that Mary is heavily pregnant. Now, I've witnessed my wife be heavily pregnant on four separate occasions. And I wouldn't dare to suggest that she should be the one to get up and answer the door if it rang while both of us are sat on the couch. So I'm pretty sure that if while she was heavily pregnant, I was to suggest to her that maybe she should hop on a donkey and take five days to ride it to another location just to visit my family, I think she'd have either laughed in my face or punched me in the face. But that is exactly what Mary and Joseph did. 
So what do you think it would have taken Mary and Joseph, or what would it have taken for Mary to say yes to doing a five-day journey, riding a donkey over open terrain to visit Joseph's family? Well, the answer is actually given to us in Luke chapter 2. It says this. At, the time, the Ro- at that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of, of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. So basically... Uh, Caesar Augustus is the Roman emperor. Uh, Rome is occupying kind of the Judea area at this point, and and he has basically made a decree that the Roman emp- everyone in the Roman Empire, everyone under his control, is to return to their own ancestral towns, so that they can register uh, for a big census. And the whole point of this was purely because he wanted to introduce an individual poll tax. Up to this point uh, in the Roman Empire, it was just states that were, tacti- uh, that were taxed. Um, but he wanted to not only tax the state, he also wanted to tax on an individual level. So he basically put this census together so that he could figure out how many people he, needed, he could tax and how much money he was going to get from it. So it took basically an evil dictator of a leader to force Mary to travel 70 miles on a donkey while she was heavily pregnant so that uh, they could go uh, to Bethlehem and ultimately have the baby there. But how many of you know that this actually took place not just because uh, the Caesar Augustus uh, issued this decree, but it actually took place to fulfill a sign that was given around 700 years ago. And actually, as we look at uh, Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus in the book of Matthew, we actually see a reference to this sign that was given. It says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw this, his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard of this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people. So there's uh, King Herod, who is uh, ruler over Judea. Judea. So he's one of the kings under uh, Caesar Augustus. Um, And he hears about this Messiah, and he's he's basically terrified because his his understanding is that this uh, Messiah is actually going to be this person who's going to challenge him for the throne is actually going to overthrow him and take is uh, take the kingdom of Judea back and so he's like I need to find out where this this baby is being born so I can deal with this now and so he calls all the leading priests uh, and teachers together and asks them where is this messiah supposed to be born and they quote the prophet Micah 
And Micah's uh, one of the, uh, what's called one of the minor prophets in the Bible, which means it's a short book uh, on the life of Micah. It's not somewhere that we often read about, but that is actually what they quote. They quote uh, the prophet Micah, who prophesied that the, the coming of the Messiah, he will be born in Bethlehem. So that is the sign that we are looking at today as we close this series on signs of the Savior. That is actually where uh, we're going today. We're going to be looking at the sign of Bethlehem. Now, if you think about it, Bethlehem is actually a strange place for the Messiah to be picked. It's an odd choice of place for the Messiah to be born. You see, if, if Mary and Joseph were the ones that were chosen to give birth to the Messiah, why not have it prophesied that Nazareth would be the place that, they would, that he would come from? Why make Mary and Joseph travel all the way to Bethlehem so that the baby could be born there? So what is it that's significant about Bethlehem? It's a bit of an, an odd choice because actually if you look at it, there's really not a great deal that is notable about Bethlehem as a place. Now, a few things that we know about it is it was the birthplace of King David, uh, which you'd expect that to be the case because as we looked at in week one, we studied the lineage of Jesus, where one of the signs was that Jesus would come from the line of David. And here we see that Joseph, being a descendant of King David, having to go to his ancestral home, it would make sense that they would go to Bethlehem. But again, why was this significant? Why not just prophesy it would be from where they were already living. Another thing we know about Bethlehem is that actually it was uh, the fields around it were the places where uh, lambs were raised and these lambs would be used as sacrifices in the temples in Jerusalem. So there could be some sim a symbolic gesture there that Jesus is uh, the lamb, as, as we would know, he would be the lamb that would take away our sins. But again, that feels like a, a lot of effort, a lot to make Mary and Joseph go through in order just to have this nice symbolic picture. So why Bethlehem? It's not a significant place. In fact, actually, uh, how many of you think you can guess the, the population of Bethlehem at the time when Jesus was born? Anyone want to try and hazard a guess? You're looking at me very nervously. Uh, so Bethlehem was uh, thought to have been around 300 to 1,000 people. That's not a lot of people. So this is kind of like me telling you that the next world leader is going to come from Nettleton. Exactly. Where is that? You're looking at me asking the same thing. Where is Nettleton? See, Nettleton, you probably don't know it because it is a tiny little village about 65 miles east of here towards the coast. And it's got a population of about 700 people. And as far as I'm aware, that I can tell, there's nothing significant about Nettleton. Nothing particularly significant happens there. Um, and I'm, I've never been, so I'm sure it is a wonderful place. I have to say that before uh, someone from Nettleton's watching online and I get some, some, uh, a letter of complaint. I'm sure it's a wonderful place. But I'm sure we're probably not going to be putting our money on the next world leader coming from Nettleton. See, we're probably going to be putting our money on the next world leader coming from somewhere like London 
or somewhere like Paris or New York or Washington or Beijing or uh, Moscow, somewhere like that, somewhere that, uh, where there is a lot of people, there is a lot of things there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of reasons why someone of power would come from those places. And, and then there's, of course, Sheffield. You know, we'd expect the next world leader to come from Sheffield, right? Yeah, I'm a little bit biased on that one, perhaps, but you know, <laughs> had to throw it in there. So Bethlehem, it really actually doesn't make a lot of sense, particularly when you consider the type of person that the, the Jews were actually expecting the Messiah to be. You see, they, were, uh, they, were, they knew all these signs, but their understanding of who Jesus was or who the Messiah would be was actually very different to who we know him to be today. You see, they were expecting this king or emperor-like figure that would come along that would actually... Um, be, uh, basically take back the kingdom of Israel, take back the land and, and actually overcome the, the kings and the rulers and the foreign oppressors and he'd actually reunite Israel as an economic nation again. Their understanding of salvation was that it was going to be this, this uh, macro scale external uh, economic or political um, victory. They weren't thinking of it in terms of a micro scale internal heart salvation. And so their understanding of who the Messiah would be was actually someone a, a lot more like Caesar Augustus. Now Caesar Augustus is the one that we mentioned earlier who actually decreed the census that forced Mary and Joseph to head to Bethlehem. Now how many of you actually know anything about Caesar Augustus besides the fact that he was a Roman emperor and he decreed a census? Anyone know anything about Caesar Augustus? There's one hand up. Yeah, not many of us know much about Caesar Augustus. And to be honest, up until recently, I didn't know anything about Caesar Augustus other than he was in the Bible. Um, and so I did some research on him over the last few weeks and actually discovered some pretty interesting things about him. You see, Caesar Augustus was this incredible military leader in Rome. But his, his original name actually wasn't Caesar Augustus. His original name was actually Gaius Octavius. That was, that was his original name. Now, Octavius actually had a, a great uncle uh, who happened to just go by the name of Julius Caesar. Now, Julius Caesar is a name that's perhaps a little bit more familiar, familiar to us, right? He's a bit more of a well-known Roman emperor. Uh, he was uh, on, on the throne of Rome when uh, Octavius was one of the military leaders. Um, and Julius Caesar actually didn't have any children of his own. And he actually took quite a liking to Octavius because uh, he, he was this great military leader. And I think there was part of Caesar that kind of saw something of himself in Octavius. And so he decided to write him into his will. And we, we all know uh, Caesar very famously died. He was murdered. Um, and then uh, Octavius went to, to Rome to find out exactly what had been written into his will, what he would actually receive. And upon this, he, he discovered that actually it wasn't just that he was receiving possessions and wealth. He discovered that Caesar liked him so much that he actually adopted him as his son and heir. So, so uh, Octavius goes to Rome and discovers that he is now heir to the throne of Rome. And not only this, but he actually receives Caesar's name. He becomes Caesar Augustus or Caesar Octavius. 
So he becomes Caesar Octavius and inherits the throne of Rome. He inherits two-thirds of Julius Caesar's estate. And as a result of this, he receives the complete um, adoration and respect of the Roman Empire. And in two years after Caesar's death, um, the, the Roman Senate actually decided to deify Julius Caesar. They decided that he was actually a kind of god. And they decided that actually from now on, everybody had to refer to him as uh, the divine Julius. He was referred to as the divine Julius. Which meant that actually uh, one of the names that would be assigned to uh, Caesar Octavius was that he would be referred to as son of the divine. In other words, son of God. And then uh, as time goes on, uh, Caesar Octavius, he, he sh again just continues to prove himself to be this great military leader. And he actually begins to really increase uh, Rome's uh, dominion. It actually begins to just rout their enemies. And uh, most of them just end up getting wiped out by him. And he leads Rome into a season or a time that was referred to as Pax Romana. Pax Romana means peace in Rome. And so then, because of these two things, another two significant things happen in Caesar Octavia's life. Firstly, he gets given the nickname, the Prince of Peace. The second thing that happens is, is that he has another official name change. He goes from being Caesar Octavius to being, as we know him now, Caesar Augustus. And Augustus, translated, it means great or to increase. So here we have uh, Caesar Augustus, someone who is this mighty warrior, someone who is uh, basically given the nickname uh, the Son of God or Son of the Divine. He's then also given the nickname Prince of Peace, and he has a title change that is referring to uh, his ability to increase the government of Rome. And do any of these words, any of these names sound familiar to anybody? Right, we're going to have another look at a different kind of sign uh, that was given to the Messiah. This is actually one that we haven't had time to cover in this, so this is kind of a Brucey bonus for you this morning. Uh, it's another passage that is regularly read at this time of the year at Christmas, uh, and it's in Isaiah. It says this. It says, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So you read that, and then you look at the life of Caesar Octavius, and you can kind of see why they would have been expecting the, the, the Messiah to be someone like Caesar Augustus. Now, they wouldn't have actually expected it to be him himself because although he ticked a lot of their boxes in their mind, actually there were several signs that he did not fulfill, one of them simply being that he was not from Bethlehem. Um, but the, he typified the kind of person that the Jewish people were expecting the Messiah to be, this great mighty warrior who would come and conquer uh, the, the land of Israel that would become king and he would unite people on an economic and political level again. So this is the kind of person that they were expecting. But Jesus came, God chose to bring Jesus in a very different way. He chose to bring Jesus into the world as a baby through two seemingly insignificant people, Mary and Joseph, 
to a completely insignificant place like Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Well, I actually believe it is precisely because Bethlehem was an insignificant place. I believe God specifically picked it because it was insignificant. It was in such a direct contradiction to what the people were expecting, the type of Messiah that people were expecting, that Jesus was chosen to be born there. See, this is actually a consistent theme that we see all throughout the scriptures. And in fact, as I mentioned earlier, one of the, the things that was significant about Bethlehem was that David was born there, um, and uh, David himself was uh, considered the least in his family. See, David was actually, uh, the, uh, before he became king, he was a, just a, a simple shepherd boy, and he was the youngest in his family. He, had, he was uh, the youngest of eight And he was the one that was left in the fields to tend to the sheep while all of his brothers went to fight in battle. Yet it was David who actually went and slayed Goliath and God chose him to be the next ruler of Israel. This isn't just an isolated example. This is a theme that you see all throughout scripture that God chooses those the most unlikely people in the most unlikely places to fulfill his purposes through them. See, I think God chooses, uh, God chose Bethlehem because he wanted to remind us, he wanted to show us that he chooses the seemingly insignificant in order to fulfill his purposes. God chooses the seemingly insignificant in order to fulfill his purposes. In his humility, he chose everyday places and everyday people to do his work. See, this is the King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of the heavens and the earth, who can do all things by his own hand. And yet he chose to come among us, to be like us. That was how he chose to come and live and to come and redeem mankind. Now, it's one of the things that I so often hear from people when I have conversations with them about what God wants to do in them. And uh, so often I hear, you know, I could never do something like that. God would never use me in that way. You know, I haven't got it all figured out. I haven't, I don't know how to do those things. I'm, I'm, I'm not special enough to do it. It's such a common conversation that I have that people feel insignificant to where they can't be used. And I, I get this, you know, it's so, it's so easy for us to think that we have to have it all figured out, have everything made up, everything uh, all together. And I've experienced that myself. That was often a big struggle for me. Like God God would never use someone like me. I'm not this special, charismatic person. But that is exactly the kind of person that Jesus and God chooses to use. See, in in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth, and he says this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful, or wealthy, when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he he chose things that are powerless to shame those who who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers 
important. See, God chose two seemingly insignificant people, Mary and Joseph, to fulfill his purposes. He chose an insignificant place like Bethlehem to fulfill his purposes. And here again, we see this example of God uh, in the early church choosing the insignificant people, choosing the people who were, uh, who were not considered wise, the people who were not considered wealthy or powerful, and people who were considered nothing at all, the despised. And he chose people like that to fulfill his purposes in the earth. We can so often believe that we're not significant enough, we're not special enough, we're not good enough to be used by God. But actually, Jesus, God showed us through Bethlehem that he actually chooses the insignificant to fulfill his purposes. And you may be thinking, you know, I, I, I still just feel that insignificance. You know, I've got nothing to offer. You know, I've got uh, just, I've got all these problems. I'm so broken. You know, I've made too many mistakes. Maybe you, you even have that thought, like, I'm damaged goods. And you feel like God could never use someone like you. But actually, you are exactly the kind of person that God wants to use. God chose an insignificant place like Bethlehem to show you that he wants to use the insignificant people, those who feel like they have nothing to offer, the least of us, to fulfill his purposes. See, Bethlehem didn't become this great city so that uh, the Messiah could come from there. Bethlehem became a great city because the Messiah came from there. Jesus came and lived a humble life among us. He became great because he was faithful to what God had called him to. Now, I don't know about you, but I often, you know, one of my big struggles was that I, I looked at these great leaders around the world and, and, and compared myself to them. And, and I always had this thing of that they're such big personalities, you know, such passion, such energy, you know, doing all these incredible things. You know, I could never be like one of them. But actually, I've learned that it's not their big personality. It's not having it all figured out. It's not having all the answers. It's not doing all these things that makes God choose us. They do those things because God had already chosen them. And it's just about having a willingness to say yes to what God is calling us to. See, I believe we actually need a heart like Mary's. See, it was Mary who, when the angel visited her to tell her that she was going to carry the Messiah... Her response was to say, I am the Lord's servant. In other words, yes, let your will be done through me. But that wasn't because Mary saw herself as this super incredible person. It wasn't because she was this excellent, prestigious person, this great religious leader. In fact, it was Mary who, after she conceived uh, Jesus, she actually uh, began to sing this song. And in, in this song, she writes these words. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. 
You know, I was reading this passage with my kids earlier on this week. We're kind of reading through the Christmas story with them each evening. And, and when we read with our kids, we actually read the International Children's Bible, um, just a translation that's a bit easier for them to understand. And I love how they word this. It actually says, um, I am insignificant. I am unimportant, it says. But God blessed me. I am not important. But God blessed me. Everyone will call me blessed. It wasn't because Mary felt that she was this special, significant person that she chose to be uh, to say yes to God, and, and God did these incredible things through her. It was just that God chose her, and she was willing to have a yes in her heart. And then think about uh, Joseph as well, who uh, was just a lowly um, carpenter boy. You know, we looked at him last week, his story, and how he was uh, on the verge of breaking things off with Mary because she had actually gotten pregnant outside of wedlock, which would have, uh, if he'd have married her, would have heaped loads of disgrace and shame on Joseph. But at the, as the angel visits him and, uh, and encourages him to, to stay with her, he chooses to marry her. So he had a simple yes in his heart to what God was saying. But I think there's a problem with these examples because, you know, I think we often dismiss Mary and Joseph as, uh, because they have this really big, really obvious call on their life, right? You know, it's not every day that we have an angelic visitation telling us that we're going to give birth to the Messiah, right? Uh, how many of us, show of hands, have actually had a blatant angelic visitation that has told them exactly what they're going to do with their life? Anyone? No, not a single hand up. It's pretty rare. It's not a normal occasion. And how many of us have been told that we're going to give birth to the Messiah? Anyone here? No, I definitely haven't. Um, so, yeah, again, like we can dismiss Mary and Joseph because they have these incredible callings on their life where God speaks in a really clear way. And we think, well, oh, I've never had that experience. And so, clearly, I'm, I'm not going to be used in this big, significant way. But the problem is, I think we actually, we have this mindset that for God to call us, it has to be this big, obvious thing. It has to be this big, loud voice making it really clear what it is that he's called us to. But that's not how he generally speaks. Sometimes that can happen, but most often, actually, God speaks through the everyday, the mundane, the ordinary situations in life. And it's our ability to be faithful in the little things that enable God to use us in big ways. I was uh, just reminded as I was preparing for this message of a, uh, a teaching that I heard Jimmy Seibert sharing. Uh, if you don't know who Jimmy is, he's the founder of the Antioch movement. Um, uh, he continues to lead the, the movement, and you can actually buy his book over on the side there, which shares the journey of the Antioch uh, as, a, as a global movement and how it began. And, um, and so... Yeah, he was sharing a message, and uh, he was just sharing this example of how, like, in the early days, he had this strong sense that God was calling him to something bigger, um, but things weren't particularly going all that well for him, and he was kind of just wrestling with that, a bit discouraged, and he's praying in his car as he's driving along, and eventually he pulls over, and he's just crying out to God, and, and he feels like God spoke to him, and God said, Jimmy, if you will just obey the next thing that I ask you to do, and you continue to do that, you will find yourselves in the, in the biggest revival the world has ever seen. 
Now, Jim, uh, God was saying that to Jimmy, but I actually believe that is true of all of us. If all of us would just simply continually obey the next thing that God puts in front of us, then he would lead us into the biggest revival the world has ever seen. It's not about this big, booming voice calling us to do this big thing. It's about us choosing to be faithful in the little things. Remember, God chooses the seemingly insignificant to, do his, to, to fulfill his purposes. And so when we are willing to say yes in the seemingly insignificant things in life, that is when we begin to see God move in a big way in our lives. So my encouragement to you is to continue to say yes to God. Now, this could be a really simple thing. It could just be as you take time to, to read the scriptures, to read your Bible, and just saying yes to whatever the Bible says, to actually implement that and, and obey that. It could be that actually uh, for you over this next season, really what you're needing to do is just say, God, what, what is it that you have for me over these next few weeks as we hit Christmas? And daily just asking, God, what is it you would have me do with my day? How would you structure my day? It could be just the things that you're facing. God, what would you do in this situation? How should I respond to this? What do I need to say to this person? All, in all these small steps, all these little moments, is where God can speak. And as we say yes to those things, we can find God moving in big ways in our life. So my encouragement is for you to give this next few weeks, as we hit this Christmas period, to put this into practice, to ask God, God, what is it that uh, you have in store for me? What is it that I need to do over these next few weeks? Just ask him and follow through with those things. And it could be something really simple, like to tidy your room every day. It could be um, to, to go and bless someone financially. It could be to ask someone you know, how they're doing, just to check in on someone. Or it could be offering to pray for someone or to encourage someone or to share your faith with somebody. I encourage you to, to do this, to set aside time to actually ask God, God, what is the next step? What is one small thing that I can do for you today, Jesus? And let God do, the, let God do big things through what seems like insignificant things to us. Because these things matter to God. So what is it that God is wanting you to do over the next few weeks? How can you step into his purposes I want to take some time to pray. And so, Trina, if you want to come on up. Uh, as I'm praying, I want to actually just give some space to let God speak to you guys. And I've actually, uh, earlier this week, I was taking some time to pray and ask God if he had anything specific for anything, anybody here. Um, so I have a few things that as I'm praying, I'm just going to share with you um, as a way to respond. Um, but I want to just give this some time, give this some space so that we can actually pause and just listen. So there may be some times of silence, and that's okay. My encouragement to you is, as I'm praying, for you to just ask the question yourself. God, God what is it? What's the next step? What's the next thing that I need to say yes to? So let's pray together. God, we thank you that you use the seemingly insignificant to fulfill your purposes. God, I thank you that there is nobody here who is too far gone, who is too insignificant, who isn't special enough, 
who isn't good enough, who isn't clever enough to be used by you. God, I thank you that you use everyday people to do extraordinary things. Lord, I thank you that you continually speak to us. You're continually leading and guiding us. So God, would you just speak right now? Would you just speak to each and every one of us? God, what is it that you would have us do? Well, help us to have the heart of Mary who's, been, who's willing to say, I am the Lord's servant. What are you saying, God? I actually had a sense that um, there was actually a, a, at least one person who um, actually has something really big on their heart. Uh, I, I don't, this could be wrong, but I, maybe it's actually to set up a business of some kind. And it's kind of, it's been there for a while and it's kind of been put off and put off because it feels like such a big and daunting thing that you're not ready for. But I just feel like God is encouraging you to just take the next step. In fact, I actually heard him say uh, that, and this may be applicable to several people, but um, that uh, you're kind of waiting for God to give you something before you go and do it. But God is saying, if you go, I'll give you what you need along the way. If you just take that step, if you go, then I have things in store for you along the way. I will equip you as you go. I will provide for you as you go. Just go. Just begin. Just take the first step. So if that's you, I just encourage you to ask God, okay, what is that next step? I have a sense that there's maybe a few people as well who um, just, again, you're just aware of just brokenness and sin that you have been stuck in for some time and, and you've kind of written yourself off. But God wants you to know that uh, he hasn't written you off. I was actually just reminded of the woman at the well. Jesus approaches her and he asks where her husband is uh, and she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, no, you don't. You've had five husbands and the man that you are living with right now is not your husband. Stuck in this cycle, stuck in this place of sin. And Jesus said to him, sit, uh, go, go and sin no more. And she uh, immediately runs into the village and because of her, because of the encounter that she had with God, an entire village came to know Jesus. God took an, a seemingly insignificant, despised person in society and brought healing and redemption to her and used her to bring salvation to an entire village. So God, what is God saying in that place of brokenness? I believe he's wanting to bring healing to your heart, to bring restoration, to bring freedom. So just release that now in Jesus' name. Release freedom, release healing, 
wholeness in Jesus' name. have a, also a sense that uh, maybe some of you have received prophetic words about you know, uh, a, a gifting, maybe it's leadership or the apostolic or prophetic, something like that, evangelist maybe, but y- you see uh, yourself as someone who could never do something like that. You, know, you just don't see it in yourself. And, uh, and I actually, uh, <laughs> I, one of my giftings, unsurprisingly, with my job is, is leadership. And I, for years, uh, had that sense, uh, uh, that feeling of, I'm not a great leader. How could that be my gifting? But as I've experienced in my own life, it's just, again, this case of step into something. Step into it. Just be willing to say yes to it. And just see where God will lead you. God will give you what you need along the way. So just be willing to receive that gift. Be willing to receive what God has given you and just ask him, God, what is that next step? What is it that I need to do to truly receive this? God, I thank you so much that you choose us. Every single one of us, everybody in this room is full of purpose. God, I thank you that you don't wait for perfection to be achieved in us before you're willing to use us. God, I thank you that you came as an everyday person. You came in such an insignificant way to do such incredible things in and amongst us. So Lord, I pray that you would help every single one of us to know how we can continually say yes to what you have to be willing to give uh, the minimal that we have, the, the simple, a few uh, loaves and fish, to say yes and give it to you and watch you uh, do incredible things through it. We ask for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done in and through each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.